If you've got your Bible with you, go with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapters 9 and 10 is where we are going to be today. And if you uh, are here this morning, you don't have a Bible, and you would like to follow along with us, you should be able to find one in one of the chair racks in front of you. And you can find uh, Ezra chapter 9 on page 395 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks. We are going to be finishing uh, a brief series through Ezra. This is the fifth uh, of five sermons in the book of Ezra, and I hope it has been helpful to you as we study a book that doesn't get studied uh, very often. Back in June, you may recall that we heard the tragic news of the condominium that partially collapsed in the Miami area. When all of the rubble was being cleared away at the end of the day, uh, they found that 98 people lost their lives in that collapse. And immediately following anything like that, the questions are asked, how could something like this happen? That's, this is the kind of thing that happens in other places. This isn't the kind of thing that happens here. And yet, as, they, as authorities began to investigate to figure out what had caused the collapse, it had been determined that there were two major culprits. One was years and years and years of water damage from the pool. The second culprit was just the salt in the air over time corroding the foundations of that building. The sad thing, uh, one of the sad things among the many sad, sad things about this story is that the building owners had apparently known about this weakness for some three years. No corrective steps had been taken which led to its collapse. We all know that when a foundation is compromised, no structure can be supported or sustained. And as we're going to see today, Ezra's great concern was that the spiritual foundation that the people were, were, uh, were laying in the present would greatly lead to compromise in the future and ultimately lead to their collapse. Now, how did we get here? For those of us who haven't been with us for this series through Ezra, how, what has happened in the book to cause us to arrive at chapter 9? Well, the brief story is this. That the book opens with the people of Israel who have been living in exile in Babylon. And the, and the Persian king named Cyrus uh, releases the people out of exile so that they can return to their homeland And one of their primary concerns is that one of their primary objectives is to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And we see in the first six chapters, there are 10 total chapters in Ezra, we see in the first six chapters external opposition to them accomplishing that objective. One would think that they've miraculously been allowed to return to their land. The Persian Empire is going to make sure that they make it there, is going to make sure that the bills are paid for and everything happens. They would immediately be able to come back and begin the building project, but that is exactly what does not happen. 
And the reason it doesn't happen is because they experience opposition almost immediately. The people who are opposed to them bribe, they harass, they intimidate, they do a letter-writing campaign back to the capital city of Babylon to do everything they can to suppress this work. And it ends up taking 22 years from the time they come back to Jerusalem to the time that the temple is finally completed. As I said, the first six chapters chronicle this external opposition to them accomplishing that objective. But what we are going to see and what we have already started to see in the last four chapters is that the, the opposition that they experience is not exclusively external. There is also internal opposition. There, is, there are problems on the inside. So we're going to see Ezra address some of those issues this morning. Now, let me just say at the very beginning that we are going to read and think about some tough stuff this morning. There are some things that happen in the text of Scripture that we're going to read today that are difficult to hear and raise questions in our mind about whether it ought to have been done that way and why. When those questions get raised in your mind, I want to encourage you to keep listening. I'm going to try my best to answer some of the questions that all of us are no doubt thinking as we hear what happens in chapters 9 and 10. So let's turn our attention to that. Chapter 9 begins with a matter being brought to Ezra's attention. If you've got your Bible open to Ezra chapter 9, let's read verses 1 and 2 together. The Bible says this, After these things had been done, the officials approached me, this is Ezra speaking, and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Now, let's remind ourselves who Ezra is and what exactly Ezra has come to do. Remember, Ezra is a, is a scribe, he is of the priestly line, he is an expert in the law. When we met him back in chapter 8, one of the things that the Bible told us was that even though they're living in exile in Babylon, Ezra has given himself, he has dedicated his life to study the law, the law of God, the Bible says, to study it, to do it, and to teach it. And so the reason Ezra has been sent from Babylon back to Jerusalem is because there is an astonishing lack of knowledge, an astonishing lack of God's law among the people there. And so Ezra goes back to teach them. That's why he is there in the first place. And you can see that as he's teaching God's word to them, as he's teaching God's law, they begin to realize in this incident that their practices are out of line with what Ezra has taught. 
The people have been marrying, intermarrying the peoples of the land, the people of the lands that God had specifically told them not to marry. Now, this was made clear. We're not going to turn to these, but you can jot these down. This is made clear in places like Exodus 34, verses 11 to 16, and Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. And our passage in in chapter 9 notes that the priests, the Levites, some of the chief officials are some of the biggest offenders in this intermarrying problem. Now, pause. Sounds a little bit racist, right? (laughs) We read something like that and we're like, wow, (laughs) Uh, the holy race, what exactly is going on here? Well, I don't think racism is what's going on here, and and I'm going to tell you why. For one thing, we have examples in the Old Testament of people marrying outside of their culture or their ethnicity. And there's two big examples of this. One of them is like the chief leading figure of of Israel for all time, Moses. Moses marries a woman who's from Cush. Cush is an African nation. We also have the example of somebody named Boaz. Remember Boaz in the book of Ruth? Boaz marries Ruth, and marries Ruth, and what is she? She's uh, from Moab. And one of the interesting things about this this whole story of Boaz and Ruth is is in here in the Bible to show us that this this interracial marriage is something that actually preserves and the line that produces the Messiah. Okay, so we have to keep stuff like that in mind when we encounter something like this, and it raises our eyebrows a little bit. The other thing I want to highlight is the reason given in both of those Old Testament passages that I, that I mentioned earlier that give those lists of people, the nations, they don't want to, them to, to intermarry. The reason given in both of those passages has nothing to do with their ethnicity and everything to do with their patterns of worship. In other words, the concern of the prohibition is not racial. The concern of the prohibition is religious. The people were being warned, if you make these marriage alliances, if you give your sons and daughters back and forth in marriage to these nations, they are not just marrying these people as individuals. They are importing and bringing in all kinds of idolatrous religious practices that God regards as an abomination. In fact, these people are called the sons and daughters in the Old Testament of foreign gods. So that's the reason. It's not a racial reason, but a religious reason. Reason, And that was the concern back in chapter 4. Remember back in chapter 4, they're about, to, they're about to start laying the foundation for the temple. They're about to start building the altar. And some of the people of the land say, hey, can we help? And they're like, no. Why do they do that? They don't want the, the people of the land to help because the people of the land are going to bring in their idolatrous practices in the rebuilding of the altar to the one true God. 
But before we move on from that, the Bible tells us something interesting in Ezra chapter 6 that we may have just passed over when we read it originally. But Ezra chapter 6 is like the, the high point of the book, which we're going to see when we, end on, when we end at chapter 10, it's kind of going to be a low point. I wish, kind of wish the, Bible, the, the, the book had ended at, at the end of chapter 6, because everything's going great there. The end of chapter 6, the, 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 uh, the foundations of the temple have been laid, the altar has, has been built, the temple has been built, and what do the people do? They celebrate Passover. They worship. They have this great celebration. People are shouting and clapping. But there are some unlikely people included in that celebration. In Ezra chapter 6 and verse 21, it says, It, that's referring to the Passover, was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So here we see other people being included when they reject their idolatrous practices and turn and worship the one true God. So the concern has always been religious rather than racial. These returned exiles have already set a trajectory in these moves that's going to bring them right back to where they started. <laughs> the whole reason that they went into exile in the first place was because they stopped worshiping exclusively the one true God and started combining that worship with the idolatrous practices of the nations. Well, Ezra's response is given to us in verse 3 of chapter 9. He says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Now that sounds strange to our ears and our day, but that would have been a typical expression in that time period of deep grief and lament. The Bible tells us that Ezra sits in this place of stupor until the evening. And in the evening, he offers up a prayer of confession that is instructive to us in so many ways. It is a beautiful prayer of confession that spans verses 6 to 15, and I'm not going to take the time to read all of it to you, but I want to just give you the flavor of it in, in verse 6. Here's how his prayer of confession begins. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. As he works through this prayer of confession, one of the things that he does is references Israel's past. He tells God in this prayer of confession that he remembers that this is a habit that our people have had for a long time. He speaks of the, the sin of the present day, and as he winds down, he acknowledges that after all that has passed, how can we, your people, break your commandments and intermarry with people who were practicing the abominations for which we were just led into exile? It is a model 
prayer of confession. And I want you to notice something interesting on it just briefly. I want you to notice that Ezra confesses sins that he did not personally commit as if they were his own. He does not wash his hands of of it. He does not stand apart from the people and say, I don't know what these people are doing, God. I'm doing it right. I don't, he does not stand apart from them. He does not look at it and say that it's not his problem. He looks at it and recognizes that though he may not have personally participated in some of these sins, he shares what we might refer to as a corporate identity with these people. We tend to think of ourselves culturally in extremely individualistic terms. If I didn't do it, it's not my problem and I have no responsibility. Looking at Ezra, I think that the Bible would tell us that there are situations when that is actually not the case. And there's a word for us there as the American church. But now I want us to move to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we find the people weeping bitterly over their sin, and a solution is proposed in beginning in verse 2. Ezra chapter 10 and verse 2 says this, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, so they took the oath. So, some leaders come to Ezra, and in response to the teaching that Ezra has been given them, they make the difficult decision that their only option is a mass divorce. Let that sink in. The book of Ezra began on a high note. I said at the beginning, it starts with a miraculous difference, uh, deliverance, and it ends with a mass divorce. And the first time we read it, we think, well, that, that can't be what it says. I'll read it again. And then we read it again. That's what it says. The rest of the chapter, chapter 10, walks through how they deal with this horrific task. They sent word 
To all the people, after this decision had been made, after Ezra had made this oath, they send word to all the people and they say, we are going to convene in the temple square in three days' time. And in three days' time, the people convene in the temple square, and while they are there, the Bible tells us in chapter 10 that it's pouring rain. It tells us that the people are all huddled together, shivering in the pouring rain, and finally, they come to the conclusion that untangling ourselves is going to take more than an afternoon. And so they commission people whose task it is going to be to sort out how to carry out this difficult decision so that it can be done in the proper way and with sufficient time. And the Bible tells us that it took three full months at the end of chapter 10 for all of this to be sorted out. Now, do you know why I wanted it to end in chapter 6? The book ends, remember, Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book, but this book that we're looking at, Ezra, ends with a list of the people who had disobeyed God in this regard. <laughs> Talk about being called out, <laughs> like forever. <laughs> it's awful for us to think uh, about this because we've got, I got questions, <laughs> One of the questions that I'm asking, and one of the questions you're probably asking as you think of this, is you think about the difficulty of this, the drastic nature of this preservation of the purity of the people is what happens to these wives and children? What, 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 did, what was done for them? Now, the Bible in Ezra doesn't tell us. The point of this passage is not to tell us how all the details got worked out. The point, of the, the point of the passage is, is to make a different point, to tell us what had to happen. But I want to give you uh, five truths, five you can call them data points, that will maybe help orient us as we think about this decision, as we try to churn through this in our minds as we, as we have questions about it. And these, these five points come from a man by the name of Hugh Williamson, who is a Bible scholar writing on this passage. But here's how he frames it with five points. The first one is this. He, he reminds us that the decision that was made here was not a prescription of the law, and it was not something, as far as we know, that God directly told them to do. Now, God may have directly told them to do that, but the book of Ezra doesn't tell us that. What we see the people doing here in chapters 9 and 10 is taking the truth that they have about God and about God wants for their lives, we see them taking that truth and figuring out how to apply it in their lives. And that's what God's people have had to do for centuries. The Bible does not give us exactly what we're supposed to do in every situation that we find ourselves in. It gives us a revelation of God, and then we make decisions as God's people about how God's word applies to difficult situations. The second point he makes is, that, is to remind us that Israel's leaders were the chief offenders in this. And that's a significant point to make because, remember, the nation is trying to rebuild itself 
There is, a, there is a foundation that's being laid, a trajectory that is being set, and this nation has absolutely no chance if the leaders themselves are leading the people into the idolatrous practices that put them in this situation in the first place. The third point to help us think through this is to consider the fact that some of these men may well have divorced their wives originally to marry peoples of the lands. The Bible doesn't tell us that in this text, but Malachi does. We studied Malachi together a few years ago. I don't remember how long ago. Everything is the past, the present, or it's going to happen. <laughs> I told you that before. So some time ago, we studied Malachi And in Malachi chapter 2, and Malachi's a rough contemporary here, one of the things Malachi calls out the people for is divorcing their wives so that they can marry the daughters of foreign gods. So there may well have been individuals who had done exactly that, who had divorced their wives to form different marriage alliances. Fourthly, we might note that this difficult decision is not a top-down decision, one that's forced on the people by Ezra. It's a groundswell-up decision brought up to Ezra in response to the teaching that he gives. And a fifth data point that, will, that can help us think through a, a difficult situation like this is that the Bible doesn't tell us what was done to care for these broken families. But we need not assume nothing was done to care for these broken families. And one of the reasons that we need not assume that if Ezra doesn't tell us what was done, then nothing must have been done. The reason we need not assume that is because God has communicated His heart throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And one of the things that God says over and over about himself or that the Old Testament tells us over and over about God is that he hates injustice. He is for the just treatment of widows and orphans and and the vulnerable, the sojourner. That is God's heart for those people. So why would God's heart not be expressed in this situation? Furthermore, if you just want to wave a a, a wand over everybody and say, okay, unmarried, that doesn't take three months. That takes about a minute. What takes three months is to sort it out, to make sure that people are sent away and cared for. That doesn't make it any less of a horrible thing. And I'm not trying to soften the edges of it. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to read this, and it's supposed to be a punch in the face. If you feel that, you're feeling what the biblical author wants you to feel. But what, we might ask, does the New Testament have to say about these kinds of situations. And let me make a few notes about that before we, move, before we move on. What does the New Testament have to say about this? Well, the New Testament is clear, I believe, that there are circumstances in which divorce is permissible, though not required. And that comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Furthermore, 
The New Testament does not in any way prohibit interracial marriage. In fact, interracial families have an opportunity to reflect the family of God that will be composed of people from every kingdom, tribe, tongue, and nation. It's going to gather around God's throne as one big, very mixed family. Praise God for that. But the New Testament does have the same concerns, not racially, but religiously, that the Old Testament has. And we know this because of passages of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about the fact that there are people who have the freedom in certain circumstances to remarry. And he says, you are free to remarry whoever you want, only in the Lord. And when he says only in the Lord, what he is pushing there, I believe, is that you are free to marry whoever you want as long as that person is a follower of Christ. Well, what about when we have a marriages of people who one is a follower of Jesus and one isn't? Because that happens, right? Sometimes uh, that, that decision is made knowingly or unknowingly. There are circumstances in which both people were married, they were not Christians, and one becomes a Christian during that. Are, are we supposed to have mass divorces in, the, in, in that situation? Well, the Bible answer to that, based on 1 Corinthians 7, is no. In fact, the Bible tells us if you find yourself married to a person who is not a Christian for any reason, don't seek to dissolve the marriage. Remain as you are. That's the principle. Remain as you are from 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if that person, if you become a Christian and the other person isn't, and they don't want to be with you anywhere and they want to leave, it says if the unbeliever wants to depart, let them depart. Otherwise, remain in the situation in which you were called. Don't seek a divorce. What we see here in the Bible is not contradictory things. What we see here in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God's concerns remain the same. He is concerned about the purity of his people as it is expressed in marriage, but the applications change based on the situation. The point here in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 is that God desired the purity of of this nation because he intends to bring a Messiah from this nation that's going to be for all the nations. They weren't just rebuilding their nation. They were rebuilding God's people. They weren't just laying the physical foundations for the temple. They were laying spiritual foundations for the future. There's a principle I want to draw from these two difficult chapters. If I could summarize that principle in one sentence, as I often do, that sentence would be this. God desires the purity of his people. God desires the purity of his people. And that is as true for us, his people, the church today, as it was for them in their day. And I just want to make 
two applications, two truths related to that overarching truth to you this morning. Number one is this, God still desires his people to pursue purity. God still desires his people to pursue purity. This was not just a concern that God has for his people, had for his people in the Old Testament. God's concern for the purity of his of his people in the Old Testament is the same concern that he has for us, his people, today. The Bible is full, the New Testament is full of admonitions and encouragements and commands for we, for, for we as Christians to pursue purity, full of them. And I'm going to give you an example from Titus chapter 2. It'll be on the screen behind me, but Titus 2, 11 to 13 says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice in those verses that I just read that the way this is framed, it's framed both negatively and positive. Negatively, there are things that we are to renounce, and positively, there are things that we are to pursue. And so the Bible tells us negatively that we, that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And when the Bible tells us that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly repassions, it is not telling us to have a one-time thing, I renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It is a day-by-day renunciation of ungodliness and the worldly passions that drive us. passions, the things for which, that which we hunger and thirst for, the driving desire to meet and satisfy our own needs, to care for ourselves, to pursue comfort or security or whatever else in sinful ways, friends, the Christian life is, a, is one of a constant renunciation of the, of the sinful thirsts within us. But that's the project stated negatively. The Bible also tells us that we are to, to uh, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, when we look at this story in Ezra, as we've done this morning, it ought to, or probably fills us, if we're paying attention, fills us with some mixed emotions. I mean, when we read a story like this, we think to ourselves, these are some pretty drastic measures that they're taking to ensure the purity of the people. I mean, surely that's an extreme example, right? Jesus had something to say like this. 
Jesus, in fact, had some pretty strong words, some pretty radical words, some pretty drastic words to say about the need for his people to pursue purity. Do you remember what some of those words are? Jesus said things like, if your right eye causes you to sin, look the other way. What did he say? Tear it out. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That sounds pretty drastic, doesn't it? Pretty drastic to me. Now, is Jesus speaking hyperbolically in those situations? Well, yeah. Uh, if, man, I'd have no eyes, no hands, no nothing left at this point if, if that's what we were supposed to do. But he's not speaking hyperbolically spiritually. Seen those old time movies where it's set, set in older times and somebody, you know, gets this catastrophic injury to their leg and they're like, you're going to have to cut it off. Here's a bullet to bite on while we do it. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone have that kind of radical amputation? The only reason you're going to give me a bullet to chew on while you saw my leg off is if that's the only thing. It's going to save my life. And what Jesus is telling his followers is that sin is going to kill you. It is an infection. And we like to keep it close. We like to believe that some of our go-to sins are things that we can keep at bay. I can dabble in it. I can keep it on a string. I can keep it in the closet. I can access it whenever I want. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Pull your eye out. Cut your hand off. Do what it needs to take to wage war against sin. So let me ask a question of us this morning. Let me ask a question of you. Is the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit of God bringing any areas to mind where you need to take some steps that others would consider drastic? And is Jesus worth it? Because we're going to sing a song called Jesus is Better at the end of the service. And a lot of times, the reasons we don't pull out the eye or cut off the hand, the reason why we dabble is because Jesus is good, but he's not better. Now, I want you to notice the motivation here at the beginning of these verses that I just read, because it's absolutely crucial that you notice the motivation that's given to us at the beginning of Titus 2.11. The Bible says, for the grace of God has appeared. And what is the grace of God that has appeared? Do the grace of God that's appeared, bringing salvation to all people, trains us to renounce ungodliness and to pursue righteousness. Now, it is absolutely crucial that you and I 
get the right motivation. Because we're going to fall apart. The wheels are going to come off this project pretty quickly if it is not the grace of God that motivates us. Because I can make lists and I can start a new journal and a new year and I can try to turn over a new leaf and I can enlist 16 accountability partners and I can memorize verses for all of my temptations and I can do all this stuff, but I won't do it enough because there's still parts of me that are undergoing the change that Jesus is bringing about and those ungodly passions win. And if I'm doing all of this because there's a little bit of grace left on the table, this is how we sometimes act. God gives us a bunch of grace, but then he leaves a little extra out that we've still got to get. And that little extra that's out there is like the carrot in front of us making sure that we do what we're supposed to do. It doesn't work like that. The Bible tells us that the grace has appeared, and the grace of God is what trains us to renounce ungodliness and pursue with passion righteousness. We don't pursue purity so that God will show us grace. We don't pursue purity so that God will love us fully We don't pursue purity so that God will finally be happy with us. We don't don't pursue purity so that we can get out from under his disappointed gaze. We don't pursue purity so that God will show us grace. We pursue purity because God has already given it, and he's given all of it. And a heart that's received that kind of grace says, if God would show me that kind of grace, what wouldn't I give? to be like Christ, to live that way too. People who have received grace are people who pursue purity. So we're not afraid of grace, and we don't talk about needing to balance out grace because it doesn't need to be balanced out. It does what it does. Number two, second point that I want to make to you is that God has accomplished the purity of his people through Christ. And this should be an encouragement to our souls this morning. As we've already noted on numerous occasions, the people in Ezra's day took some pretty drastic measures. And as we read their story, we might find ourselves asking, was that the only way? Well, I can't answer that question. The Bible doesn't tell us. It tells us what they did. As ugly and tragic as those divorce proceedings were, that is not by a long shot the most drastic measure taken in the history of God's people to ensure their purity. The most drastic step ever taken to ensure the purity of God's people occurred when the sinless Son of God hung on a cross for the sins of of the world. You want to talk about drastic steps? Was that the only way? 
That's the question Jesus was asking, wasn't it? What does Jesus pray the night before? Is it possible for this cup that I'm about to drink to pass from me? Is that the only way? Nevertheless, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. If the cross was that drastic, then how terrible is our sin? And how dedicated is God to purifying his people? The drastic nature of the cross accomplished the mission. I want to read the following verse. We read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Now I want to read verse 14, which continues that thought, and it says, it, it, it ends, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love this verse because it promises us that in spite of the fact that you and I are not very good at renouncing our passions, I mean, maybe somebody here, you are really good at renouncing your passions, but I'll raise my hand and say, not as great at it as I would like to be. And we are not as concerned about pursuing self-control and upright lives and holiness. We are not as good at that. And there are times when we feel so trapped, we feel like a, a big bundle of wrong desires. And we feel so trapped by that that we wonder, is this ever going to get unraveled in me? Am I ever going to see clear on this? And the Bible tells us that what Jesus did on the cross purified for himself a people, which means that one day this ball of intertwined wrong desires, selfishness, and all that stuff, it is going to be completely untangled and you are going to be purified to the point, the Bible says, that you are going to be like Christ. And Jesus did that, Titus 2.14 tells us, so that we could be his own possession. Jesus wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. And because your sin... My sin gets in the way of that relationship. He takes the drastic measure of dying to make sure that you will be his treasured possession for all of eternity. And let me just say a word to somebody here who may not know Jesus in that way because this is great encouragement to God's people this morning. When we come to Jesus repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Him, 
The Bible tells us in a variety of ways and using a variety of different metaphors that we are washed. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody who is here this morning and you just feel dirty. And maybe it's because of things that you've done and some of it is because of stuff that's been done to you. You think, how can Jesus make this clean? We sing an old-fashioned song that puts it in words that are unfamiliar to us, but that song says, there is a fountain filled with blood. It's a strange metaphor, but work with me. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Which means that you can be you come to Jesus in faith, you can be washed, not mostly clean, but clean. Ezra, the book, ends on a low note. It ends unfinished. The people are back in the land. That bright future, okay, we get a fresh start, we get to do it over. It's not happening. The prophet Isaiah had had said that Israel would one day be a light to the nations, that the nations would be streaming to that light, and that's not quite happening yet. They still need the promises of the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah had made, that God's spirit would be poured out, that God's law would be written on their hearts. Though the people have been returned to the land, there's a sense in which they're still living in exile. The Bible tells us, we saw at the beginning of 1 Peter, that we are God's chosen exiles. But the book of Ezra promises us that we, as God's chosen exiles, are most certainly, by God's good hand, on our way home. So let's pray. Lord, we have encountered difficult things this morning. But I pray that we have together seen the grace. We confess to you that we are often feel like we are a bundle of sinful desires. We thank you that Christ came to purify us and that this project of Christ-likeness is as good as done. I pray that as we think about the grace that we have been shown, it would drive us to renounce ungodliness and pursue righteousness and joy because we believe that Jesus is better. Lord, if there's someone here this morning looking at their stained heart, I pray that you would open their eyes, give them faith to believe that they can be washed and forgiven and made new. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.